me hope. As you find your place there in 1 John 3, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let's pray and invite God to teach us this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you with hungry hearts, hungry for hope, hungry for your word, uh, Lord, hungry for healing. We realize that this life can be awfully draining on us and that we need some source, some fountain of renewal. I'm so glad, Lord, that you are that and that you have made a way for us to come to you, to drink freely and fully, and that we, Lord, have this eternal supply of hope and joy and peace in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to drink deeply today from the well of your water and that our thirst would be quenched. Lord, I pray that you would instill hope in the hearts of your people. And I pray that if there's anybody who does not know Christ, does not know the love of Christ, I pray that today it would melt their hearts and then that they would come to him in faith. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, hope is our theme this year because living in this world is kind of like living in a desert. It constantly evaporates our hope. And so we may get a supply of hope and it lasts us a little while and pretty soon we find that it's depleted again. But in Christ, we have found our fountain of hope. And that is my goal this year is to show you that God is an inexhaustible source of hope which can satiate our thirst and keep us from becoming dehydrated by hopelessness. And so today we begin a new six-part series entitled, uh, God Gives Me Hope. In this uh, series, we're going to see that the love of God gives hope, the creation of God gives us hope, the covenants of God give us hope, the names of God give us hope, the word of God gives us hope, and the justice of God gives us hope. And so we're just going to take uh, these six weeks uh, with a few special days in between, and we're going to dig into the doctrine of God and discover how that these doctrinal truths about God actually reveal an abundant source of hope for you and I. In 1 John 3, 1, John directs our full attention to the hope-giving love of God. He calls our attention to it and he wants us to focus on it. As we just take in the letter of John for a moment so that we do not do damage by just leaping into one verse with our own presuppositions, we notice that John begins his letter in an affidavit-like declaration. It's, it's like an affidavit because he's declaring that he is an eyewitness of Jesus. 
Uh, I have seen him, I have heard him, I have touched him, I have been uh, helped by him. And so he begins this letter with this, this affidavit-like declaration. Uh, what I'm about to say to you is based on eyewitness accounts. And then he moves quickly to his main subject of the letter, which, which really is this, that, that Christian's life is noticeably different from a non-Christian's life. And so remember, 1 John is written almost like an addendum to the gospel of John. The gospel reveals Jesus to us and calls for our faith in Jesus. And then in 1 John, he says, if you've put your faith in Jesus and Jesus dwells in your heart, there's going to be a marked difference between your life and the life of an unbeliever, or a marked difference between your life in Christ as opposed to your life before Christ. However, there's not one hint of legalism in John's writing. That's astonishing, isn't it? Because what he touches on is this, this fact, this rock-solid, concrete, immovable fact that if you are in Christ, you are different. And if you're not different, then you are not in Christ. And yet, there's not one hint of legalism in John's letter because the great motivation for the believer's change in behavior, is the love of God. What brings about this change? Well, it's the same thing that brought about a smaller, similar change when you got married, right? Your single life was different than your married life, and it's not because of the legalism of marriage. It's because of the love of the relationship. I have changed some things because I love this person and I'm committed to them. And that is what John has found in his own life. It's the greatest motivating factor in all the world. Motivation is not guilt. The great motivating factor in Christianity is not guilt. It's not legalism. It's not living up to the rules. It's not achieving some sort of a ward or reward or a status. It is the love of God that is the greatest motivating factor in the entire Christian life. And, by the way... That is why chapter 3 begins so abruptly. If you're just reading through this letter, there's an abruptness that comes in chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love. And the reason for its abruptness is that John knows that he has just laid down some very heavy admonition, right? Uh, they went out from us because they were not of us, and he goes on and talks about the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. And then, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the motivating hope that is in John's heart erupts onto the page in the middle of this letter. And he says, behold, let me, let me just stop right here for a moment and, and remind you what it is that motivates this change, that affects this change, that, that, that is the reason or the catalyst for this change. It, it is not because we're trying to achieve some perfect standard. It is not because we are self-righteous and we are living by the law. It is not because we are trying to be like Pharisees. It is because of the love of God that he has bestowed upon us. Us. You see, 
What John is saying is this love is unignorable. And this word that he uses, behold, is meant to be an attention-grabbing word. It's like he's saying, stop what you're doing and look at this. It is so important that you need to direct all of your attention toward it. Uh, If you're on the golf course, it would be equivalent to four. I don't know if you've ever played golf, but if you hear somebody yell four, you immediately duck. Because there might be a golf ball coming 98 miles an hour at your head. And the person who realizes that they've sliced it or that they've pulled it or they've hit it off mark uh, has put some other person in danger. And they don't have time for anything else other than to get your attention. And so John is using a word like that. Behold, it was meant to grab the reader's attention. This is how John feels about the love of God. And he calls his readers to focus their attention on this all-important issue. You say, well, if it's so important, why does John have to call our attention to it? Well, because that is the plight of the human life. We have a tendency to ignore the important things, don't we? We have a tendency to do that. I had a visit with a church member a few weeks ago as a condition of AFib and knew that she had a condition of AFib but didn't do anything about the condition of AFib until the AFib almost killed her and she had to go to the hospital. He said, why would anybody ignore that? Because that's what we do, is it not? And we do the same thing with the love of God. Christians uh, too often treat the love of God like the Jones diamond. Have you ever heard of the Jones diamond? The Jones diamond is the largest alluvial diamond that's ever been found in North America. As a matter of fact, it was found not far from here in a little place called Peterstown, West Virginia. It was discovered by 12-year-old Punch Jones and his dad Grover when they were pitching horseshoes in the lot beside their house in Peterstown in 1928. They kicked up this stone and thought it was really neat, but they didn't know that it was a diamond. They thought that it was quartz. And while quartz is neat, quartz is pretty common, especially around that area. And so they put it in a cigar box and they put it in the tool shed and they left it there for 14 years. And then in 1942, Jones took that, what he thought was quartz or some sort of uh, rock, and he took it to a geology professor at nearby Virginia Tech. So if you know the geography, Peterstown is not very far from Blacksburg, and so he took it to a geology professor at, at Virginia Tech, and that geology professor informed him that it was a 35 carat diamond. Can you imagine, ladies? Now, the story gets even more interesting because Grover Jones, who was a school teacher during that time, had 16 sons and one daughter. During the Great Depression, with a 35-carat diamond in his tool shed... 
And you say, how in the world could somebody ignore something? And I say, that's what you and I do to the love of God all the time. The love of God is greater than any diamond. And by the way, if you're a geek like me and you're wondering what the word alluvial means on alluvial diamond, it means it washed down from somewhere else. There was not a diamond mined in Peterstown that they dug it out of. So it, it washed down the New River or hit Rich Creek and ended up in Peterstown somehow. But the fact is, it illustrates greatly for you and I what we do with the love of God. When we got saved, the love of God has been given to us. And sometimes we kind of set it aside in the tool shed and we, we struggle our way through the Great Depression and ignore the most valuable possession that we have. And so John exclaims, Behold, what manner of love. And so John is calling our attention to look at this love, but he says you need to understand, you need to consider that the love of God is unprecedented. It is unlike any other love that you have known in your life. No matter how deep the love you've known, no matter how great the love you've known, no matter how abundant the love you've experienced, you've never experienced or seen love like the love of God. I think it is so interesting to me the words that are used in Scripture. We have this belief, this doctrinal belief, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? It's part of our bibliology. And so we believe that even though these words were penned by human beings, they were actually inspired or breathed out by the Holy Spirit. So there is one author to the entire Bible, though there's 40 human penmen, and he uses a consistency of vocabulary that helps us put the pieces together and to understand what it means and so the Holy Spirit inspires John to use this word behold what manner of love the father hath bestowed upon us that word manner means what sort what kind what species from what country is its origin what nation what tribe it is it is absolutely foreign to our world, and that word is used a few other significant places that really drive home how unique God's love is. For example, it is used in Mark 13, 1, when Jesus and his disciples make a trip to Jerusalem, and the disciples declare, what manner of stones are these that make up the temple? And what they are saying is, there's no other stones like this in all of Israel. You see, they have traveled all the way from the northern region of Galilee, and they've walked all the way down to the southern region of Judea, and they've never seen a stone like the stones that are in the temple in Israel. By the way, there is some evidence of that left today. There is what is called the Western Stone by archaeologists. And it is a block forming the lower level of the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall, which is actually part of the old temple uh, complex foundation. You want to know what the measurements of that Western Stone are? It is 11 foot tall and 44 feet long. No wonder they said, what manner of stones are these? 
We've never seen anything like this before. And that's the word that God inspires John to use when he says, Behold, what manner of love. But you know, it gets even more intensified as we trace that word through Scripture. And we find that it is used in Luke one twenty nine. Luke one twenty nine is when the angel comes to announce to Mary that God is going to cause her to become pregnant and she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And she thinks, what manner of salutation is this? And she's using the exact right phraseology. There's never been a greeting like this before. There's never been an angel sent from heaven to a virgin to announce that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And so rightly so, she says, what manner of salutation is this? So as we're following this word, it's beginning to build in its meaning for us to understand the ramification that's being used when John says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon this. This isn't unlike any other love. This is an un- Unworld, this is otherworldly love, but I, I, I think that, that the most illustrative use of the word is found in Matthew 8, 27, because it's in reference to Jesus. And if you remember what's going on in Matthew 8, Jesus and his disciples have entered a boat. Jesus has had a long day of ministering, and he goes to sleep on the back of the boat. And as they are crossing the sea, a terrible storm kicks up. And I mean, it is something that is filling the boat with water so that these men who have lived on this sea all of their lives are terrified with fear. They're afraid that they're going to die. And they go back to the back of the boat and they wake Jesus up and they say, Don't you care that we're about to perish? And Jesus calmly steps to the front of the boat and he says, Peace be still. And they say, behold, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let me ask you, what species was Jesus? What was his country of origin? What manner of man was he? He was a one of a kind. He was the God-man. He was otherworldly. As a matter of fact, John 3.16 says that, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That that doesn't mean only child. That means the only one of his kind. And that's the word. That's the word that God inspires John to use when he's directing our attention to his love. And he says, behold, stop what you're doing. There's nothing else as important as this. Direct all of your attention to it and consider what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon you. It is unlike any other love. We have no frame of reference for this love in our life. What kind of love is it? Well, in the Bible, there were three types of love. There was eros love, which was sensual. There was phileo love, which was brotherly love. And then there was agape love. Agape love is different from the other loves because it is an unconditional love. It is a a, a love that that is based upon the, the, the love giver, right? The sensual love can be drawn out. The brotherly love can be built through a mutual bond. But the agape love is a love that is poured out from the giver. 
And it is a love that is so unconditional and so undeserved. And it actually will make sacrifices to meet the need of the recipient. That's the kind of love that God has for you and I. We didn't earn his love. We didn't exchange his love. We love him because he first loved us. And so John wants us to take in for a moment. He wants us to forget everything else we know about love and to consider the love of God and to see it as standing alone in its uniqueness and in its deliverance to us. And then he says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That word bestowed means to freely and fully give. You see, the love of God is unconditional. It's not based upon our performance. God the Father doesn't just give us some of his love. He doesn't dispense it or withhold it based upon our performance. Well, you did well, I'm going to give you my love today. We're not like his puppy dog that learns a new trick and gets patted in a treat. That's not the kind of performance-based love that God has for us. It is an unconditional love, and it is a love that is free, and it is a love that is full, and it is a, a love love that God has just completely given to us and again we trace the word in scripture and we understand a little bit more what this looks like I think the greatest illustration of this is found in the parable of the prodigal son you remember in the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus was telling when he was being accused of eating with sinners he told them the story about how a man had two sons and that the younger son came to his father and he said, give me, give me my inheritance. And you have to understand that, that he wasn't entitled to that. That inheritance literally would not come until his father died. But he demanded it now. He didn't want to wait for his father to die. He wanted that. And in and, and, and Luke 15, actually Jesus says that the father gave to him and his brother, divided to them, all of his living it wasn't what they had earned it wasn't the wealth that they had built it wasn't a return on an investment that they had made it was his lifetime work it was his life's savings it was his life's investment and the bible says in luke 15 and the younger of them said to his father give me the portion of goods that falleth to me and he divided unto them his living that word give in Luke 15 is the same Greek word as bestow and it shows us how God the Father gives his love to us even when we don't deserve it or we don't return it to him let me ask you did the father ever get money back from the prodigal son no he spent it all in a foreign land on riotous living but did that change how the father gave amazing and God wants you to know that that's how his love is for you you and I are not always what we should be we don't always reciprocate the love to God the way that we should sometimes we squander it but it doesn't change that God has given to us his love fully and freely 
And the great difference between us and the prodigal son is that we can never expend the love that our Father's given to us. You see, because in that parable, Jesus goes on to tell the story that after that boy had spent all of his father's savings and he had nothing left, that when he came back, his father still loved him, still called him son, still wrapped his arms around him in the stench of the pigsty and rejoiced that he came home. Oh, that's the kind of love that the father has bestowed upon us. But you know, old John is not finished yet. Because with this interlude of hope, he goes on to say that we should be called the sons of God. So when we take it together, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. First notice that the love of God is personal. We, you and I. Those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those of us who are willing to receive his love, do you understand that the lost world is saying, I don't want the love of God. I reject the love of God. I reject anything that God has to offer me. And those who put their faith and trust in Christ say, I'll receive what you're giving to me. And so we are not just collectively lumped all together in this generic love right you've all been there right somebody's retiring or leaving and they get all emotional and I just love all of you all and you've worked with them and you know they don't love everybody (laughs) you've heard how they felt about a few people and it was not love That's not the terminology in which John is speaking here. He's not just saying, God loves all y'all. Like a blanket. But he loves us individually. You. He knows you. He knows your history. He knows your DNA. The Bible says that he knows the number of the hairs that are on your head. And do you know that that can number up to 100,000? I mean, besides Craig and Joe and a few others in the room, I mean... And it fluctuates. You, you lose something like 5 to 10% of your hair follicles every day and your regenerating hair follicles. So imagine that. That's a number. Every one of you all have hundreds of thousands of hairs on your head that are in fluctuation in count every moment of every day. And God knows every one of them. That's love. That's the depth of love that God has for you as an individual. And then he says that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the sons of God. That, that word called has meaning in it too because when you look at how God calls in the Bible, when he calls somebody, it means to title them, uh, to give them a name. And he did that throughout the Bible to set this precedent for you and I. He, he took a man named Abram, which meant father, and he says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham which means exalted father, father of many. He takes Sarai and changes her name to Sarah. He takes Jacob, the old supplanter, and he changes his name to Israel, to prince with God. He takes Simon and he calls him Peter, the rock. He takes little Saul and he names him Paul. What is he doing? He is calling them 
by a name or a title that he has now given to them. He is showing that there is a difference in their life now that they have been brought into his covenant family. So what title has he given to us? Well, in the text it says the sons of God. That we should be called the sons of God. Now, we've been born into the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what that means. You must be born again. But it also means that we have been adopted, this legal transaction by which children become heirs, that we're not just offspring, that we're not just progeny, but that we are actually legal heirs of the Father. But here's, again, where I'd point out to you the, the, the specifics of the language that is used, that we should be called the sons of God. And in our modern American age, after the second, first and second waves of, of uh, feminism, we might have this posture where we say, why does the Bible always use these male terminologies? Is this, is this part of this hierarchy that was fostered upon women and others? And No, let me tell you what God is doing. God's communicating to the world. And he's communicating to the world over a period of thousands of years. And so he is using language that is relative to every culture, no matter what their understanding is. You understand that today in Middle Eastern countries, that many women have no rights. Y'all are aware of that? Y'all know that? That's a reality? Literally, no rights. They can't own property. They can't vote. I mean, no rights. Do you think God wants the gospel to get to those people? Do you think he wants them to full the full weight of his promise? So how does he do that? Well, he says that we're called the sons of God. Why? Well, because at the time of this writing... And in cultures since then, and even in cultures today, it was the sons who were the right, had the rights of all inheritance. And what God wanted you and I to know is that there's no second-class citizen. There's no stepchild with God who gets treated differently from his children. But that all of you all are in the same equal footing, that we are sons with God. And he fleshes that out when he says in Romans 8 that, that, that if we are children, then we are heirs of God and that we are joint heirs with Christ. You know that verse, Romans 8, 17, still baffles my mind that I am an equal heir with Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus is perfect. Jesus did always what the Father wanted him to do. Jesus is the one who carried the weight of the cross and the weight of our sins. He is the one who suffered the wrath of the Father on my behalf. I mean, he deserves the lion's share of the inheritance. And God says, no, not so. When I save you, I make you just like my son. And I don't want you to have any mistaken understanding about what that means and the love that I have for you. It is equal to the love that I have for my son, Jesus Christ. That's 
the kind of love that John wants us to draw our attention to. The problem is, is that we can lose sight of the love of God while we're living in this unlovely world. You see, because he goes on to say, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knows us not, because it knew him not. Hey, just because you're special to God doesn't mean you're going to be special to the world. And because you're not special to the world, it might give you this complex where you think, Well, maybe God doesn't love me very much either, because I'm not very popular. And John goes on to say, Beloved. Beloved. Loved ones, now are we the sons of God? Right now, we are the sons of God in Christ. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. I mean, it's not fully manifest what all that means. But we know that we shall be like him when he appears. Because we will see him as he is. Please know this, God could not love you more. Let that sink in for a moment. God could not love you. You might be sitting here saying, well, I haven't read my Bible this week. I haven't been praying very much. Well, you wouldn't believe, but I really got mad and I cussed this person the other day. And God could not love you more. It's not a performance-based love. It is agape love. It's love unlike you've ever discovered or seen or experienced before. And he gave it to you fully and freely. In fact, he proved it by laying down his life for you. Say, how do I know that God loves me that much? Look to the cross. Because he died for you. Greater love hath no man than this. And a man laid down his life for his friends. And that is what Christ did for you and I. And so if you have been doubting the love of God, doubt it no more. Oh, I invite you to come find your hope in the love of God today. Would you bow with me? So we take it all in for just a moment. God wants you to revel in his love. He wants you to make that the focus of your attention. He doesn't want you to be distracted by other things in life. He wants you to give some real time thinking about the love that he has for you the love that he proved when he died on the cross for you and the love that he is looking forward to fully manifesting to you one day when your eyes are open to it in heaven but today we are the loved ones of God today We are the sons of God. The world may not think that we're that great, but our Father in heaven couldn't think any higher of us than he does. Oh, Lord, thank you for your love. I struggled for a long time in my life feeling unlovable, unworthy of love. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that you used this verse in my life a long time ago to open my eyes to see how much you truly love me on my bad days as well as on my good days. And it's your love, it's your love that motivates me to live for you, knowing that my 
acceptance is not based upon my performance. But oh, how I want to please you because I love you back. Oh Lord, I pray that there's anybody in this room who struggled with believing that they are that loved by you. I pray that today their eyes would be open and that they would find hope in the love of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.